Turn your Bibles with me to 2 Samuel chapter 5. We're continuing our study through this book. It's a great chapter on the, the emergence of uh, David as the new king over the nation of Israel. And I just entitled it, Doing Life Under God. And what does it take for us to do life under God? Those who do it best are those who understand to do life under God means we need to do it under the authorities that God has put in place over us. And all of us have authorities put in place. The first authority is God. You only have to go to the fourth word of the Bible to get that. In the beginning, God. And God does what? He creates Everything else, we're part of the creation. So God is over us as creator. And then God creates us in the womb. He fashions us in our mother's womb. So he puts over us mom and dad. And he commands us, fifth commandment, you shall honor your father and mother. Another authority. He begins placing authorities over us. So to do life well under God, realize that he's an authority. He must be uh, respected and uh, we must live in submission to him. But then the authorities he's puts in place like mom and dad. Uh, so how do you do with that? Do you, do you live in submission to the authorities God's given you? Submission to God. Submission to mom and dad. Submission to a husband. Submission to a boss. Submission to a president. Submission to government leaders. Submission to teachers. I mean, there's lots of authorities God has put in place. To do life well, we must do it under those authorities. We're living in a time, I read several articles this week on kind of an anti-fascist movement and just who is the Antifa? Is that how you pronounce that? I don't know. But that was, that was the article. And we, we, we've got uh, protests going on in our society about really how to do life as an anarchist. We have shows, the Sons of Anarchy, this, uh, uh, trying to popularize this idea. The, the, the mantra of an anarchist is, is, is simple. No gods, no masters. Now think about that. Can we really do life well with no gods and no masters? And yet, that is a movement in our land that we should be free to do whatever we want to with nobody telling us what we do, long as we don't hurt you who are doing whatever you want to do, long as nobody, you know, we're not, we're not interacting with one another. Um, this week, I think the, the uh, Burning Man Festival, 70,000 people get together in the desert really with this kind of view that we don't need government and authorities and rule. We can just love one another. Well, think through that. If we want peace, we need the God of peace. And, and the God of peace creates peace by creating order. And he creates order by giving us governors and rulers and authorities that lovingly lead and we humbly submit to. Um, the people of God in 2 Samuel 5 understood that. That's why they had a good life. They begin with an understanding of the authority God puts in place. So as, as I was looking at even the first verse here, it says, the people of 2 Samuel 5, the people of God get life under God. Life under God is life under a rule. It's under a ruler who has a standard, is a governor who governs, and that's God. And how does God do that? So I want you to see some of that as we look at 2 Samuel 5 this morning. Uh, uh, let me just kind of start working our way through it. Chapter 5, verse 1. Then all the tribes of Israel came to David at Hebron and said, My first thought I had, well, wait, how do you do that? How do all the tribes show up and talk? To David. I mean, that's a lot of people. We're going to see how that happens. Just hold on. But all the tribes come and says, Behold, we are your bone and your flesh. Previously, when Saul was king uh, over us, you were the one who led Israel out and in. And the Lord said to you, You will shepherd my people Israel, and you will be a ruler over Israel. So all the elders of Israel. Whoa, now I understand. All the tribes didn't have to come. 
just their elders came. So all the elders of Israel were really the ones coming and talking to David. Of Israel came to the king at Hebron, and King David made a covenant with them before the Lord at Hebron. Then they anointed David king over Israel. So here's the um, ordination service, whatever you want to call it, uh, the installation service of David as king. Uh, he was in Hebron, now they're going to make him king over all uh, of Israel, and he's going to move to Jerusalem. But think about all the tribes coming to David. How did they do that? They do, do that through elder representatives. Now, the elders in the Bible represent God to the people and do actions that are of benefit to the people as God directs. In other words, they're not, elders aren't there a little bit. Our society's changed now from uh, more of the republic in which we, we stood to more of a democratic society. We, we started where the, the leaders of our land were supposed to represent the Constitution. Now we've gone to a land where the people are supposed to represent the people. And it's, it's causing all sorts of problems. But in the Bible, you have the elders who are supposed to represent God. So they weren't so much elected as they were appointed by God to represent him to the people. And these elders come to David and they say, you know, we, for, for several reasons we'll get to, are, believe you need to be our next king. Now I want to just stop a little bit and talk about elders a minute because it just... It just as you see them emerge here, they're, they're in so many places throughout Scripture. And, and we seem to neglect that God's church is a rule by elders church. It, it, it emerges here, but it, it, even before that, uh, the apostles talked about the church in the wilderness. The church in the book of Exodus. And go back there with me just quickly. Look at Exodus chapter 3, verse 16. You know Exodus 3, that's the burning bush story. Um, Moses is out watching his flocks, and he he's, uh, sees this burning bush, and God comes to him in the burning bush and says, Moses, I want you to lead my people out of Egypt. What, what does he do after complaining about all that? You know, once he gets convinced he needs, he needs, he's God's man for the job, what's the first thing he does? He contacts the elders. Look at it. Uh, Exodus 3, verse 16. Go, is commanded by God to do so. Go and gather the elders of Israel together and say to them, The Lord, the God of your fathers, and the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, has appeared to me, saying, I am indeed concerned about you and what has been done to you in Egypt. By the way, when he mentioned Jacob, Jacob, um, when he went to bury his dad, Israel, took the elders. I mean, they had an elder service. You can read that in Genesis 50. We, we sometimes don't see this elder component always in the church start in genesis you see it here in exodus how many well let me show you one other thing he does with the elders look at verse 18 they will pay heed to what you say and you with the elders of israel will come to the king of egypt and you will say to him the lord the god of the hebrews has met with us so now please let us go a three days journey into the wilderness that we may sacrifice to the lord our god now, how many of you have ever seen a children's picture, you know, story of this with Moses sitting around with the elders of Israel? Or how many of you have ever seen the picture story where Moses and the elders are sitting around with Pharaoh talking about the people of God leaving? You see, that's what the Bible gives us. We've got this, this mentality of Moses with his staff and his long hair blowing in the breeze and he's the superhero that's taking people out of Egypt. But God says, no, that's not the way I rule my church. I will have a leader in Moses, but Moses, you work with the elders. Go to the elders, they're already in place. They've been there for a while with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. They're still there. Go talk to the elders. Get the elders on board. Bring the elders to Pharaoh. And once y'all get there... The Pharaoh's going to see, this is not just some loony that showed up with a staff and long flowing Superman hair, you know. This is Moses and the elders who are petitioning him, uh, giving argument for why they should be able to go and worship their God. Uh, this concept is all through the scriptures. 
when you get into the New Testament, it's not strange at all, you know, that God has elder-run churches because his church, the national church, was always elder-ruled. And now that we're international, to every tribe, nation, and tongue, there's a plurality in every church. Um, look at Acts chapter 14, verse 23. Command to the church planners, planning churches, Paul and Barnabas, uh, chapter Chapter 14, yes, verse 23, Acts 14, verse 23. When they had appointed elders for them in every church, having prayed with fasting, they commended them to the Lord in whom they had believed. So Paul and Barnabas go back to all these churches they plant, and then they put in place before they leave them on their own, you need a plurality of elders, elders plural they appointed elders in some of the churches no every church that's how god rules his church um, so when you get to uh, a passage like um, church discipline matthew 18 uh, and you get this phrase take it to the church what does that mean? Take it to the church. It's the same thing we're seeing in 2 Samuel 5. When the church went to talk to David, who really, who really went? It was the elders who went to talk to David. And in Matthew uh, chapter 18, it says, you know, you got this thing between you and a brother or sister in Christ, and you go to them, that's church discipline. And you say, I really don't think what you're doing is biblical. Here's the chapter and verse that bothers me. It seems inconsistent in your life. And and you're trying to encourage them and build them up. Um, they say, oh, well, thanks. I appreciate that. I'm going to pray, pray with me on that, and we'll work it out. Uh, that's, that's church discipline. It's also growing up the body of Christ. But sometimes you run into a brother or sister when you lovingly go to them, and then you say, uh, hey, uh, I've been moved by the Lord through this chapter, this verse, to encourage you. This is something I see. And they said, uh-uh, I don't want to listen to you. Get out of my house. I don't believe that way, yada, yada, yada. And you say, huh, that's, and I'm still bothered then because they, they didn't go into the Bible with me, they didn't pray with me, they didn't listen to this. So it, the instruction in Matthew 18 is, the beginning of verse 15, 16, says, if they don't, verse 16, if they don't listen, then you take another brother or sister with you. So you take them, you say, there's two witnesses here now that, that what you're doing is sin and it bothers, it hurts, bothers us, it hurts the whole family of God. So, can we work this out? If they still don't listen to you, it says, then take it to the church. Well, how do you do that? You take it to the elders. And the elders say, look, we've got two witnesses that say this. We've read the Bible, and it does say what they say. So if that is really in your life, let's talk about that, and let's see how we can work this out. The elders have the authority in the church to receive and dismiss members. And so it's on that level. It's like, you know, we really need to be growing in a consistent manner in Christ. And so when you read verse 20 of that passage, where two or three have gathered together in my name, I am there in their midst. So misunderstood uh, by most people. They think, oh, that means prayer meeting. Where two or three are gathered, God's, God's here. That's not what it's talking about. It's talking about church discipline. If you've ever done church discipline, which means if you've ever admonished a brother or sister in Christ, that is not easy. And when you do that, I mean, it, it just, it's, it's a gut-riching kind of experience. Like, I hope they listen. Holy Spirit, please help them to see the same way I see. Let's work this out. I mean, that is very difficult. If you're an elder and you get to the place where you have to dismiss somebody because they will not repent and listen to Scripture, I mean, the comfort here is that God says, I am with you. When two of you or three of you are gathered for something as serious as building holiness in my church, I am there. I am with. That's that's what's going on. Um, that's the kind of thing that's going on. It's that kind of serious meeting with Moses and Pharaoh. That kind of serious meeting with the people in Second Samuel with David, where elders need to be in place because something is impacting the entire church here. Um, so you have. In the New Testament, qualifications for elders and deacons. Uh, and I just share that because there's so many churches today 
that call themselves true churches, but they have no elders. I'm thinking, what Bible are you reading? It starts in Genesis, and it goes all the way through. I mean, you can't get away from elder rule. The largest church in our state and the largest church in the land that we look to, they don't have an elder rule government. So it should, should kind of raise a red caution, yellow, red flag, whichever. It says you know, something is wrong. They're in a category of not a true church if they're not being ruled by elders. Well, maybe enough said, but to think through that, David is anointed to rule. There are elders that are anointed to rule. And that's where we, we jump in in 2 Samuel chapter 5. So let me get back there. 2 Samuel chapter 5, as they come to David, they, they really mention three things. Let me kind of interpret them for you a little bit. Three reasons, David, why we are convinced. So the elders come to David, they have this meeting, just like the elders came to Pharaoh and had this meeting with Moses. By the way, elder rule doesn't diminish a need at times for a leader. Uh, Moses didn't hurt the elder rule. David will not hurt elder rule. A senior pastor does not hurt elder rule. Elders can have a senior pastor or a Moses or a David that says, hey, let's talk, let's work things, and you still have elder rule. And that's what you see. You have a leader of elders, but you always have that elder rule. Well, they, the elders come to David, and they say three things. Number one, uh, verse one, behold, we are your bone and your flesh. So we choose you to be king, number one, because you're family. But by family, we mean you're people of God. You're converted. You are one of us. You're not of some other tribe and nation, just has great leadership abilities. Uh, you'll see in the New Testament, the key ingredient of an elder is he's converted. He's family. And you see how he manages family and manages the family of God and thinks about that and prays about that and that's on his heart. Well, that's how they start with David. Number one, you should be king because of that. Second, you should be king because you're familiar to us. Verse 2, he says, you know, even when Saul was king... We were watching you, and we were examining you. You went out and came back in to us, and you were a leader. We've seen your gifts. We've seen your abilities. We've seen your reputation. We've seen your integrity. We've been examining. We see that you are qualified for the job. So they, 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 they point that out to David. He's, he's family. He's familiar. And then notice the third thing. He's favored. Verse 3 says, uh, so all the elders of Israel, uh, even before that, says, verse 2 says, And the Lord said to you, You will shepherd my people Israel, and you will be ruler over Israel. So they go back to a promise. And that promise was back in 1 Samuel 16 that says, I'm rejecting Saul, and I'm going to make David the new, the new king. They're going to call him. By... By being favored, what we mean is you're called of God for this. God has specifically chosen. You're not just godly. You don't just have leadership gifts. You're not just one of us. But you're specifically called for this assignment. God has pointed it out in the word. You meet the standard. You meet the qualifications. So when they put all of those things in front of David, of course, David agrees. Uh, verse 4, David was 30 years old when he became king, and he reigned 40 years. At Hebron, he reigned over Judah seven years and six months, and in Jerusalem, he reigned 33 years over all Israel and Judah. So 40 years in total, he becomes their king. Um, why is all this here? Perhaps to remind us and demonstrate again for us how God keeps his promises, how God promises certain things to his church and rules his church consistent with those promises. And when you see that, you know, God promised David would be king. He had to wait months. He had to wait years to become king. And then after he becomes king, at 30 years old, he's waited a long time, he stays king for 40 more years, for 40 years. Well, 
you know, God's given us some promises. And I stop to think about, well, you know, what are some of the promises? One that comes to me a lot is just Psalm 1. It's so popular, it's so ready for us to, to grasp. But think about it. It says, do not walk, don't stand, don't sit with the ungodly in their place, their counsel, their teaching, their instruction. Meditate on the Word of God day and night. And then there's this promise. He says, and you're going to be like a tree that's planted by a stream of water, and you're going to be a fruit-bearing believer, and, and you're going to be with me in heaven, but the people who don't do these things, they're going to be like chaff that's thrown away and burned again in the pits of hell forever. So as you, as you read through Psalm 1, you say, wow, do you want to bank on that promise? Or I shared with you some uh, last week in Psalm 112, or I can't, maybe it was the week before, just it's a short psalm of God's covenant that if you greatly delight in my commands, your children are going to be mighty and they're going to be blessed. And when you read promises like that, to me they're just they're embedded in my heart and my mind. Says, Lord, keep this promise and enable me to do my part. The things I need to do, because you said if I do these things, you will do these things. And those are glorious promises. David was, t was told, David, I want to make you a man after my own heart. I, wanna, I, I want you to lead my people with heart, with this passion for me. Saul doesn't want to do that. He doesn't want, as we say, he doesn't want to trust and obey. He wants to do it his way. But I need a leader who pays attention to my way. He pays attention to elder rule. Elders are there in front of him. Think this through with me, David and lead according to my word and my way. And David says, yes, I'm that man. God says, wait for the promise. You know, he's got to wait, 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 wait. Are you willing to wait for God's promises like Psalm 1 or Psalm 112? I am. It, it doesn't matter if it's a lifetime. It doesn't matter if it's a long, a long time or a shorter time. God promises. You keep going back to God every day and say, Lord, Am, am I sufficiently doing what you want, my part? I'm counting on this to be an accurate, true word from you for my life. Or how about uh, Romans 10? I love it where God says, he says, you've heard it said that everyone who believes in him will not be disappointed. I love that verse. How cool is that? No disappointment in heaven. Everyone who believes in Christ, you don't have a single person ever come back from heaven. Not even these shining light stories, deathbed experiences. Nobody comes back and says, I don't want to go to heaven. Everybody says, Lord, quickly, quickly, take me. Heaven is so wonderful. God gave us a promise. If you believe, you will not be disappointed. He says, trust me in this. Eye has not seen, ears not heard, all that I have prepared for you. So a, a remembrance that we have a God who keeps long-term promises. Maybe that's part of what's here in 2 Samuel chapter 5. God's ruling his church. He's keeping promises in behalf of his church. Well, let's keep going. Verse 6. Now the king and his men went to Jerusalem against the Jebusites, the inhabitants of the land, and they said to David, you shall not come in here. Uh, let me stop right there. All right, he's been in Hebron. He's now going to be king over all of Israel, so they're going to move the capital to Jerusalem. He comes to Jerusalem. First time they've been in Jerusalem, it's first time, in other words, Jerusalem's the capital of the national church known as Israel. Before this time, you see, the Jebusites inhabited Jerusalem. So as he goes to Jerusalem, he is going to have to throw the Jebusites out. And he's going to establish his throne and his kingdom, his capital city in Jerusalem. And that Jerusalem city is kind of the hub of the people of God until you get to Christ's time. Where Christ goes into the temple and then he destroys the temple and then it goes international. But it's, it's beginning here, and as it begins here, stop and think, well, you know, this too is an answer to a promise. Look at Genesis 15. 
Remember this promise back in Genesis 15, verse 18. So as I saw these promises coming, coming to pass in David's life, it's, it gave me that application I was sharing with you earlier. But in uh, Genesis 15, uh, let's just start reading it. Verse 18, it says, uh, this is uh, God speaking to Abraham. So go all the way back, the father of our faith, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob. Promise to Abraham. On that day, uh, Genesis 15, 18, on that day the Lord made a covenant with Abram, saying, To your descendants I have given this land, from the river of Egypt as far as the great river, the river Euphrates. The Kenite, the Kenizzite, I can't, can't do this publicly here, Kenizzite uh, and Katamanite. Anybody struggle with these names? I'm not the only one. And the Hittite and the Parasite and the the Riphaim, in verse 21, and the Ammonite, and the Canaanite, and the Girgashite, and, don't miss this, last three words, and the Jebusite. Now, what's God doing there? He said, I'm going to give you, I'm going to give my people land. I'm going to start here in Egypt, uh, the great river of Egypt, and I'm going to take you all the way over into this land that's going to become known as Israel, the great Euphrates River. And from, from this river to that river, that's going to be y'all's land. But in that land right now are all these people we have a hard time pronouncing. And the last people who will control that territory, you see it there, the Jebusites. So this promise that was made to Abraham, and these people started occupying this land, all of these people, the last ones to occupy it are going to be the Jebusites. So when David is going up to Jerusalem to wipe out the Jebusites, he is finishing the promise that was given 800 years ago to, to Abraham. How cool is that? God told Abraham, this is what's going to happen, and now it, it's, it's done. David goes to Jerusalem, knocks out the Jebusites, and takes over that territory, and ultimately has the territory that God had promised was going to be the land of his people. Well, the Jebusites are arrogant. This is how you're going to understand this language. Back in 2 Samuel 5, verse 6, uh, the language is, is, is difficult to translate, but just, just understand how arrogant the Jebusites are, and it makes sense to you. They say to David, it says, they said to him in the middle of verse 6, to David, you shall not come in here. Well, sure, I would say that too. If you came up to my house and said, hey, we're going to take over, I would say, no, you can't come in here. I would say that much. I would say, I'm locked and loaded, you know, over my dead body. Something like that. The Jebusites take it a lot further than that. They say, not only can you not come in, but the blind and the lame will turn you away, thinking that David cannot enter here. So it's, it's really just an arrogant statement. Uh, never, uh, in other words, it's like, it's like, you, you, not only can you not come into our town and take over and start ruling here, we are stronger and better than you, and you won't have a chance. Our blind people can shoot better than you can. Our crippled people can run faster than you run. You don't have a chance. That's what they're saying. It's like putting their chest out. Go ahead. Bring it on. We'll, we'll put our blind and cripple in front and watch them demolish you. So, I mean... Pretty arrogant kind of confrontation goes on. So verse 7, nevertheless, David captured. It's like, <laughs> that ain't nothing. David's, David's a very successful warrior. He's just like, you know, they blow that off and jump on it. But then he just doesn't give us the details. Nevertheless, David captured the stronghold of Zion. That is the city of David. David said on that day, whoever would strike the Jebusites... Let him reach the lame and the blind who are hated by David's soul through the water tunnel. Therefore, they say, the blind or the lame shall not come into the house. So he's, he's throwing the words back at him. David turns around, you know, goes to his, his army and says, they say the blind and the lame got more on us than we got. I hate those guys. I know how to win this battle. We don't have the details. Somehow it's through the water tunnel. So David tells his men, who wants to go first? If we go through the water tunnel, we'll, we'll reach those lame and crippled Jebusites. And we'll whip them. 
they do, and they're whooped, okay? Basically, all God gives us. He wants to give us the end before we even get the details. Verse 7 says, they capture it, they wipe them out. Why? Because it was God's promise. I mean, David could have gone back to Genesis and said, this is, this is, no, this is no brainer, this is done. God's already told us, we got this. Well, they did have it. Um, catch verse 10. Well, verse 9 I didn't read. So David lived in the stronghold and called it the city of David. And David built all around from the Milo and inward. So this is where it gets its name, the city of David, Jerusalem, uh, from the beginning. Verse 10, David became greater and greater, for the Lord God of hosts was with him. That's what you circle, that's what you underline. Why did all of this work out? Because God was with him. God is with you, who can be against you? The promises of God. God had promised this for his people, and his people get exactly what God promises. Pretty cool. All right, well, let's move on. Gives us a different perspective than a lot of people have. Verse 11, uh, Then Hiram, king of Tyre, sent messengers to David and uh, cedar trees and carpenters and stonemasons, and they built a house for David. And David realized that the Lord had established him as king over Israel and that he had exalted his kingdom or for excuse me, the sake of his people Israel. Notice the perspective we have here. Um, and don't get caught up in uh, critical analysis. Some people will say, if you read commentaries on this section, they'll say, that's not true. First thing David did in office was not build a house. There's nothing in this passage that says, you, says chronology was the author's point. He's not telling you that he built a house first thing. He's telling you just that he built a house. That God provides a place for his people. He provided the city. He provides a place for the king. The point is not that he has a house. It's, it's very clear. The point is that he's a servant. David was greater because of God. Verse 10, verse 12, he was exalted. He has his house for the sake of his people Israel. That's the perspective we miss. David is a leader for Israel. He's not a leader for David. He's not in it for himself. He's in it for God, and he's in it for God's people. That's why he was chosen. That's the point. A lot of times we miss that. We, you know, think about that last phrase. He had exalted his kingdom for the sake of his people Israel. So many times we are chasing commendation instead of chasing service. David is not chasing at any point here recognition. He doesn't seek to be commended. Yeah, I'm your man. Exalt me. Build me a house. You know, get me this, this, and this because I'm your king. He's the king because he wants to serve the people. How many times do we see, you know, that's what kingdom life is like. Life under God, life done well for God is doing life to build his church. I can't tell you the number of times I've... I've, I've um, Spoken to school administration, school teachers, students um, here and said, you know, one of the primary goals of Christian education is to build churchmen. And I just get, what? Churchmen? Never heard that term. I'm not even sure it's in the dictionary. Uh, but it's a concept, it's all through scripture, that we build churchmen. And we're not really completing Christ unless we're building the church of Christ. We're living for the church. Somebody, somebody asked me this week when they saw me up here working at 8.30, said, you know, what are your hours? I said, it doesn't really matter my, what my hours are because I just, I, I'm, I'm, I'm excited that I get to live and serve Christ and his church. It's, it's not about putting in the hours. It's about what you get to do. And I get to be here for the church. And for Christ, and to get that concept ingrained in us that I have been called, I've been gifted, I've been commissioned for Christ and the church. And we certainly got to get that concept into our kids before they leave uh, high school and go into the world and college or wherever. Because they're falling away from the church. They see no connection to the church. They've not been trained or taught. Well, wait, wait, wait. Your purpose on planet earth do you have planet purpose 
Your purpose on planet Earth is for the church. To build up God's church. That's what David was here. He said, David, your purpose, you're exalted for the church. Now just think through that with me for a minute. But how, where do you get all this? You get it from, from the text there. He's for Israel. Israel's the church. But think about Christ in Matthew 16, verse 18. What did Christ say? I came to build my church. I'm the owner. It's mine. I'm the builder. It's what I do. And the gates of hell will not prevail against it. Everything else can pass away, but what I've come to do is own and build a church. Matthew 16, 18. That was Christ's passion. He says, nothing's going to thwart this passion and ministry of mine to be the church builder, to be the church owner. I am redeeming people for my church. I'm calling people out of the world, out of darkness, to be church. And we become churchmen. I'll give you an exciting verse. First, this is where I first saw this. Ephesians 1, verse 22. The end of Ephesians, when you get to this, this glorious chapter in Ephesians, and uh, this, this kind of climactic section of God giving us Christ. And when you think about how awesome or exciting that is, that we have a God who so loved the world that he gave us his Son. But what did he do with the Son? Son son is the gift. Christ is our gift. Look at um, Ephesians 1, verse 22. And he put all things in subjection under his feet. So Christ has now everything under his feet. He's Lord, he's Master, he's King of kings. All things are in subjection under his feet. And he gave him as head over all things. So Christ is the head of the church. He's the head of everything. But notice the last three words. Christ is head, Christ is Lord, everything's subject, Christ is given to you, Christ is all of this to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all and all. You begin to, to take in what he's saying there. I am given Christ to the world to build my church. I'm giving Christ to the church. I'm not exalting Christ just to be Christ. But I'm exalting Christ to lift up the church. And as he comes and gives himself to the church and serves the church and ministers to the church, he builds the church and the church grows and it begins to fill to this this unbelievable fullness of all things. It just culminates in the building up of his church. That the gift of his son is for that purpose. And that's what's in Paul's heart and mind as, as he's doing this. And so he says over in Ephesians 4, um, verse 11 and 12, And he gave some as apostles, and some as prophets, and some as evangelists, and some as pastor teachers. Well, those are the New Testament elders. The apostles become elders, prophets, priests, uh, evangelists, and become the, the, the New Testament elders. And they are there, verse 12, what? For the equipping of the saints, for the work of service, to the building up of the church. Are you a good churchman? Elder's job, pastor's job, teacher's job is to equip you to be good churchmen. To build up the church. And you all have something to contribute. Look at verse 16. From whom the whole body being fitted and held together by what every joint supplies, according to the proper working of each individual part causes the growth of the body for the building up of itself in love. Everybody has a part. Skip to 1 Corinthians 12, verse 7. says, you've been given a spiritual gift. What, so you can exalt yourself? No, for the common good. Everybody has been gifted. Everybody has been called. Everybody has been equipped. Everybody is uh, constantly being taught to be good churchmen, to give yourself in ministry to build up the church, the fullness of Him who is given to us. Just unbelievable concepts. You see it back in 2 Samuel 5. David, the reason I am lifting you up to be king is because you are a man who has my passion, my heart to build the church. You are here for the church. 
make no mistake what your planet purpose really is. So we have that perspective. I mean, here I have significance. I have value as long as I use the gifts, the calling God's given me. What's, what's your job in the church? How do you do it? You know, I, I preach, I teach, I pray, I give. These are things I know I must do to build the church. But you all have gifts. You all have abilities to be doing the same thing. Every joint supplies something to building the church. You can be always, you know, job evaluation, asking yourself, well, how am I doing? You know, I mean, am I an encourager? Am I an admonisher? Am I uh, writing the letters? Am I giving the prayers? Am I giving the resources? Am I giving some leadership? What am I doing? How am I serving the church? That's why we're here. You know, if, if you do win the lottery this week, I hope you do. That'd be great. So if you win it, what are you going to do with it? Every now and then, I hear somebody say, well, the first thing I'm going to do, of course, is tithe. And I'm thinking, well, of course, duh, yeah. But then what are you going to do? Certainly you're going you're to give God back some offering of gratitude and thanks, which we call the tithe. But how are you going to use the other 90%? Are you going to use that 90% at being a good churchman? Or do you go build yourself a house in Jerusalem? What are you going to do with it? Are you going to do something for the church? You see, that's why I'm here. I'm not here just to have two or three more vacation homes. I'm here to be building the church. It's okay if you have two or three more vacation homes. Just make sure you invite me, okay? That's... But that's not the point. You know, the point is that we're building the church. And we do think about our resources. We do think about our gifts. We do think about our abilities. We do think about where God has planted us on planet Earth and how we use our position to build His church. That's what God was doing with David. That's what He's done all through the Scripture. We need to think through our place and our kids need to see their place in the church of God so that they, too, are building God's church. We're living life well under God by the perspective that our job is to work along with Christ, build His church. Well, there's a lot here. Uh, go back in Second Samuel. We get to some problems. I call them the problem sections of Second Samuel 5. It says, then, uh, excuse me, it starts in verse 13. Meanwhile, how do you like that, wor that word? It's like you're reading all these passionate stuff, significant things are happening. Then verse 13, oh, meanwhile, you know, that's kind of the way it goes. David took more concubines and wives from Jerusalem after he came from Hebron, and more sons and daughters were born to David, and they start listing their names. So you have a tally of David's wives, and his sons and daughters. We had the first tally in 2 Samuel 3 when he was in Hebron. As soon as he took office, more wives, more sons and daughters. Now he takes office in Jerusalem, more wives, more sons and daughters. Sons and daughters consistently throughout Scripture is a sign of strength. More wives, usually a sign of weakness. That's why I think the word meanwhile is like, oh, I need to tell you this, but... It's just one of those things that happens. And there doesn't seem to be big emphasis on it. But, you know, I don't find in Scripture so much you can have too many sons and daughters unless you just, you know, you're not gifted and qualified or resourced to, to, to handle it. But David as king certainly has the resources for the sons and daughters. But there are pro, uh, there, there are places in Scripture where too many wives is too many. Okay? Let me just give you one. David should have referred to Deuteronomy 17. God says, yeah, when you, when you have your first king, they're going to want more wives. That's what kings do. This is going to be a problem. Deuteronomy 17, um, verse 18, Now it shall come about, when he sits on the throne of his kingdom, he shall write for himself a copy of, so he gets his own copy of the Bible. Uh, let's see, verse 19, so it will be well with him. Um, Let's see. Um, oh, excuse me. I, I just started too, 
too far along. Let me go back to verse 16. Moreover, he shall not multiply horses for himself, nor shall he cause the people to return to Egypt to multiply horses, since the Lord has said to you, you shall never return that way. Verse 17, he shall not multiply wives for himself, or else his heart will turn away, nor shall his, um, he greatly increase silver and gold for himself. It's like when you get to this position where you can have the world, notice you're going to face temptations. You want a king whose heart stays right on track. One of the things that will quickly change his heart is his wives. And so we have that in Scripture. We don't have real clear prohibition consistently through Scripture of, of these multiple wives against multiple wives like David. But we do have this one. He's a king, and the king says, not many, God says, for the king, not many wives. By the time you get to the New Testament, it's expressly and explicitly says of both elders and deacons, they must be one woman men. A husband, you know, I gave it to you. Some of you are looking at me like, does it really say that? Yeah, it does. First Timothy chapter 3. Uh, so it's very explicit now. God's, God's moved us there again. This is a, a movement in our society towards uh, polyamorous, polygamous kind of relationships. Not for the rule of God's church. First Timothy chapter 3, verse 10, 2. An overseer, which is an elder, a bishop, then must be above reproach the husband of one wife. It says the same thing for deacons. Verse 12. Deacons must be husbands of only one wife. So there's your prohibition. David, this, this multiple wife thing, that's, that's going to that's be your nemesis. That's, that's a problem. We'll see that play out, and we certainly see it play out in David's son with Solomon. But those are problems. Um, you know, do we ever take God's blessings too far? Seems that's where David was, taking the blessings too far at times, and taking them too far hinders being good churchmen, building up the body of Christ the way Christ wants us to build that body. Well, chapter um, 5 of 2 Samuel, verse 17 through 25, you have this battle with the Jebusites. So they go up to Jerusalem, you know, they, they go up, and they're calling them Philistines, this war with the Philistines. Uh, they're beating the Jebusites, we've already seen now, the Philistines. And there's just really two battles here. Both times some very simple stuff happens. Uh, as they go up against the Philistines, verse 19, Then David inquired of the Lord, saying, Shall I go up against the Philistines? Will you give them into my hand? And the Lord said to David, Go up, for I will greatly, certainly give the Philistines into your hand. I mean, it just makes sense. Jebusites, they had to take their land. The Philistines, they hear, Wait, they're just fighting, fighting our brothers, the, the Jebusites. We don't want David to get too strong too quick. We need to wipe him out while he's weak. David says, okay, now I've got to fight the Philistines. He asks God, God, do I do this? Is this the right time, right place? God says, yeah, do it. And uh, David's language is, verse 20 says, the, the Lord has broken through my enemies before me like the breakthrough of waters. It's like, I did it just like God said, and it's like, bam, like, a, like busting a hole in the dam. We just burst in there and just washed them out. Great. Next battle against the Philistines. Now, verse 22, the Philistines came up once again. They spread themselves out all over the valley of Rephidim. And when David inquired of the Lord, he said, you shall not go directly up, circle around behind the balsam tree. So this time he's different strategy. Before, just meet them head on, watch them bust. This time he said, no, I want you to just kind of swoop around behind these trees and just wait for me to do something for you. You will actually hear marching. You'll hear soldiers marching in the treetops. And when you hear that sound, just take off and you'll watch them fall in front of you. Because I'm going in front of you to wipe them out. What do we learn? David both times acts consistent with God's command. God commands him. He acts consistent with prayer. He asks, God, do you want me to do this? Yes, I do want you to do it. And this is how I want you to do it. So he does it consistent with God. When we have to fight battles, think about what we can learn there. We need to be asking, God, is this really what you want? How do you want me to do it? We need to be reading his commands for God to say, I want you to do it this way. And then we need to be following those commands specifically because sometimes he, he redirects. 
Well, last time I did it just like this. Yeah, I don't want you to do it that way. This time I want you to do it this way. We need to be constantly reading. How many of you, I mean, I see it every week as I'm reading through the Bible, as I'm coming to discipleship class, as I'm coming preparing for a sermon, you know, I'm preaching it to me first. How many times do you see God direct you? Gives you clear direction to what you're facing in life as you're hearing the Word of God. It comes straight out of God's commands. And as you're inquiring of God, you have to have that inquiring spirit. God, God, I'm coming to you. I'm on my face before you. I want to know what you want me to do. And God directs by his word. He controls us by his uh, commands through our prayer time, through our times with others. Um, and we triumphed. The Apostle Paul was just elated about uh, the triumph that, that he had as he ministered for the church. Um, let me just read one quick verse. 2 Corinthians 2 verse 14 says, but thanks be to God who always leads us in triumph in Christ and manifests through us the sweet aroma of the knowledge of him in every place. Paul says, is that not cool or what? As I struggle with what to do next, and Paul was constantly praying, God, where do you want me to go? What do you want me to do? And he says, consistently over and over and over, I see how I triumph in Christ. Just a beautiful thing. Well, it's a beautiful passage, 2, Corinthians, 2 Samuel 5. Think through all that God's doing and blessing. To, let me just kind of sum it up. How, how are you doing at life under God? Do you first of all acknowledge the authorities God's put over you? Do you see the necessity of an elder rule church? That we need to be submissive to those who care for our souls, those who are praying for and with us consistently through Scripture? That God wants to direct us many times through them. Do we see that authority? We see the need to do life God's way under those authorities that he's placed. Do we respond with humility? Are we arrogant like Jebusites? Do we respond submissively to those situations God puts us in? Inquiring of God, seeking God's commands, being directed by God. Do we see the, the beauty of a God who gives wonderful promises to his people and keeps those promises no matter how long it takes? That and so much more there in 2 Samuel 5. hope it's an encouragement to you. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for your word, your truth, the richness of it. There's so much, Father, for us. Every day, every week, there's things we need to turn away from we're doing life so many times our way, according to our wisdom. Father, redirect. Turn us from sin. Turn us back to the way you lead your people as the head of your church. Father, help us to get on board. Help us to, to be better at not doing life for us, but doing life for the church. That you redeem, that you honor, that you exalt as the bride of Christ. Forgive us for our pride, our arrogance. Lord, make us humble to your ways, to your word. Turn us from sin and turn us to life with you, realizing that without Christ, there's no victory. There's no heaven. There's no ultimate crossing the goal line and seeing the beauty of our God before us. Father, we ask that you would give us faith in the one that can give us more than we ask or think. Thank you, Lord, for this time in your word. The fruit we gain from it, we give you glory and praise in Jesus' name. Amen.